if you're visiting here this morning. Um, it's a lot to be in a study like Revelation. It can be confusing and, um, and really difficult to understand exactly what all of this is about, what it's really talking about. And so it's why we're kind of taking our time to go through it, and, um, but we're also not taking longer to go through it than we are because um, I think what we've talked about is the importance of being able to stand at an appropriate distance from a text like this, to be able to not get so up close that we're breaking down every single individual word and symbol um, looking for a, a modern-day correlation or, or something like that, but also that we're not so far away from it that we just treat it all like it's a poem or something that we're meant to use for devotional reading and then kind of move on with our lives. Um, and so this morning, we're going to be looking at, at a whole chapter, chapter 12 of Revelation, because it's all really one thing that's happening that's being talked about. And so as we read through that this morning, before we jump in, um, I'm going to read through it um, here. We'll put it up on the screen for you, and you can follow along there or in your Bible. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 12, and uh, we're going to do the whole thing. Revelation 12.1 says this, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and she was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before our God? And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved, not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. 
But the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dra- that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So, yeah, we're going we're gonna to just stop there. Uh, Hopefully, when, I, when we're done this morning, you will have a perfectly crystal clear understanding. You'll go, oh, okay, I get it. No. I'll tell you one thing. Like, there are different perspectives on Revelation um, because um, it is a difficult book to interpret. It is a type of biblical genre that we're not usually accustomed to dealing with, which is apocryphal literature. And um, one of the things, though, I will say that I have the hardest time with is those who approach Revelation and simply say, look at how simple and clear it is. Yeah. (laughs) Jake Jake feels the same way. There is nothing simple or clear about the chapter that we just read. But there is a way to understand it and to make sense of what John is being shown here. And it's really, really important that we do so. In Egyptian mythology, there is um, the story of the goddess Isis, who is portrayed with the sun on her head. And uh, she birthed Horus, another god, and there was a red dragon named Typhon who sought to slay her. But in the legend, in the myth, she escaped to an island, and her son Horus overthrew the dragon. Uh, In the Greek version of this story, the great dragon Python warned that he would be killed by Leto's son. That's a goddess, Leto's son. He pursued the pregnant Leto, who was hidden by Poseidon on an island which he then temporarily submerged, because Poseidon can do that. After Python had left, Leto birthed the god Apollo, who in four days was strong enough to slay the dragon. Or, um, in the, I would say, modern-day retelling of this myth, as seen in the Terminator movie, the uh, great war between the machines and the humans uh, comes to uh, pivotal moments when the machines realize that the human who will defeat them, uh, they can go back in time and um, defeat him by killing his mother, the great Sarah Connor. And so they send back Arnold Schwarzenegger, a Terminator, with the one goal of killing her or the young boy before he could rise to be the great leader that would deliver the humans from the machines. This is a common myth, a common tale that has been told again and again. And what we see here in Revelation is um, God using this uh, myth that there have been various forms of as a way of illustrating to his own people 
exactly what's going on around them. There's a lot of different reasons that we'll see in here why he chooses to do it this way, but um, it helps us to start there, I think, to understand that that's what he's doing. He's hijacking another story, another tale that people would have heard in some form of or another, and he's using it to make his point. We read here uh, that a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, we will eventually be told that this woman gives birth to a child um, and that that child will rule with an iron spear. So um, the child is Jesus. Let's start there, okay? And we'll work our way back a little bit. Uh, The child who she will give birth to is Jesus. Now, some have thought that the woman is Mary because a woman gave birth to Jesus, but there isn't any other indication in Revelation um, that, that we're looking at Mary or any other mention of Mary. And so what's much more likely is that this woman doesn't necessarily have to represent one woman, one person, but she actually represents um, the church. And really what it was was this sort of faithful remnant of God's people, of the Jewish people. You see, for many, many years, he had had a people, and not all of them were faithful to him. Not all of them obeyed him, and um, it was out of those who were faithful to him that Jesus would be born. And so um, the best understanding we have of this woman is that she represents the church itself, God's people, really, the faithful people of Zion from whom Jesus would eventually emerge. Now, a very uh, specific picture is painted for us of a woman uh, experiencing labor pains, preparing to give birth to a child, the most vulnerable state someone could be in, and a great beast, a great serpent, a great dragon, waiting in that moment for the child to be born. The serpent, we're told right here in um, this account, uh, represents Satan himself, the devil, the great enemy. He's poised, waiting for this baby to be born. But what's also interesting is if you were to apply this to the story of Jesus' birth, we have someone else waiting for a baby to be born and someone else who will behave like a serpent that wants to consume the baby, which is um, Herod the Great, the, uh, the emperor of Rome at the time who uh, was uh, waiting for this Messiah and who tried to then kill uh, these Jewish children after he was born. So we see Satan is the enemy. And um, this woman, the church, births someone who will save them and defeat this enemy eventually. And he's waiting for Christ to be born. But there isn't a lot of emphasis on the birth itself. It's very quick. The baby's simply born, and it says goes up to heaven where there's a battle. There's much greater emphasis, really, on the ascension of this boy who's born, this baby who's born, and the work that is done spiritually in God's realm and God's kingdom um, afterwards. He goes up, and he battles it out with Satan, and, and we see the, this archangel, who we've read about and heard about before, Michael, who's battling on behalf of God's angels, and there's this great cosmic battle going on, and then eventually 
um, Satan is defeated, and they're cast down. Uh, We think that's probably why uh, it says that this great serpent knocked out a third of the stars from the heavens. Those stars aren't necessarily the same stars as the one over the woman's heads, um, but... uh, and there's a lot that goes into maybe what the symbolism of those stars over the woman's head is because if you know the story of Joseph and he has a dream and he has a vision and uh, that involves um, his brothers being stars and his father being the sun and his mother being the moon and this is God's people, the Israelites, that they would eventually become. So you see these things are all kind of connected and we see connections between a lot of what we read about in the Old Testament and the imagery and the symbolism that comes here in this account. But really the important point that is being made here is about this battle that's actually going on. Because we eventually get to this, where we, uh, we read in verse 10 of our chapter, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. So essentially what has happened in this this story that's being told, this uh, series of signs or, or images that are being given to John to pass on to the church, is we've just read about the birth of Jesus, this battle that happened when Jesus himself was on the cross. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he ultimately defeated Satan, the enemy. And so Satan has now been cast down, and the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Praise God for that. The... uh, This enemy has been thrown down, and he's described as being the accuser of our brothers who accuses them day and night before our God. Why tell the story in this way? Why give this image, give this, right in the middle of Revelation? Because this is the point of Revelation. As we get to the middle, we recognize that the way that things were written at the time, and the way this vision is probably given to John, what's in the middle matters most. You're, you're, you're uh, putting a, you know, you're bracketing it with the things on two sides. So we've built our way up to this point here, and then we'll build our way back out. And so it's what happens in the middle that gives us, it's what's written on this scroll that we're still kind of seeing things happen around the point of this scroll in the Revelation that tells us really what Revelation is all about. And the point of it is this, that God has won, that the enemy has been defeated, and it's now giving us a way to understand why it doesn't feel like that's happened. You see, um, if, in order to understand Revelation, we must go back again and again to the seven letters that are written to seven churches in, in the chapters 2 and 3. Of Revelation, because those letters remind us that this is going out to a church that is experiencing all different sorts of persecution or temptation as a part of the Roman Empire. It is to those churches that this letter is being written to, that this uh, that this revelation is being given, 
And the good news is we can relate to quite a bit of what those churches were going through um, as we read through those letters, and they kind of cover all the issues the church still deals with today. This vision is given as a message to those churches, and the point of it is to help us understand what's really going on around us, what's going on behind the scenes. One of the things that we've asked in this series is, why is it not more straightforward? Why not just say exactly what you mean, right? Jesus often did this. He tried to make a point and say something, but he didn't say it in a way that was perfectly clear and easy to understand. He told parables. And the reason that Jesus did that was because there were people around his ministry that he didn't want to understand what he was saying. He didn't want to give them ammo to use against him so, because he wanted his ministry to continue for some time. And so instead, he spoke in parables. And he basically was like, if you want to understand, you'll get it. And if you don't want to understand, then you won't understand. Why is that so important here? Because the point that Jesus is making is this, that you who live under the rule of the Roman Empire are engaged in a battle and you feel it. You don't feel like it's peacetime yet. You don't feel like the side you're on already won. You still feel like you're in the middle of the fight. And what he's doing is he's pointing out something. He's kind of attacking an idea that was behind the power of the Roman Empire to begin with. You see, the, the Roman Empire version of this myth, this myth was hijacked by the, the emperor at one point. And instead of the versions I gave you, it was um, the, uh, the emperor was born of a woman and was the great hero who would save us from any enemy that we encountered. By telling their story this way, the emperors considered themselves and made themselves out to be gods themselves. And so the emperor now would say to the people of Rome, worship me as a god. I am all-powerful as a god. And if you worship me as a god, then you can thrive in the Roman society. This was the pressure the churches were under. But instead, what John is showing the church is this. He is not a god. He is not the one who was born of a woman. They're actually taking the very story that gives the Roman emperor his power, and they're telling it their own way. God is telling it his own way. And he's saying, he's not the one who's going to win. He's not the one who's going to be in charge. It's going to be another. And the one who's really in charge, the one who really wins, the one who's really the good guy in the story is Jesus himself. Now, it wouldn't be a good idea for churches to be passing around a letter that directly rebukes the divine emperor himself, right? That mocks the reason why we would worship our Roman emperor and so, instead, it's given to them in a vision, in a sign, in a way that's a little bit hard to understand, much like the parables were. But the point of it is clear to us. It is to show these seven churches the battles that are really being fought, to show them who the enemy really is, and to show them who the good guys really are. What battle are we fighting? What battle are we fighting? The answer, a Revelation chapter 12, is this. There is a bigger spiritual battle going on. Whatever battle 
we think that we're fighting in the world today as Christians. And there is no shortage of people telling us that we're fighting different battles. The answer is always the same. There is a bigger spiritual battle going on than the one you're hearing about probably or the one that you're facing in this isolated situation. This is an encouragement to these seven churches, really the whole church, to say to them, I get it. You're fighting. You're engaged in some kind of battle. You, you would have no trouble identifying the enemies in your church, the enemies to your church in your particular town. In the town in which you live, here are the enemies to the Christians. And here are the good guys. But, and here is what's really that battle is all about. It's about whether we worship the emperor. It's about whether we give in to temptation and start acting like Roman people. It's a battle for uh, whether or not we really want to begin to live in this way that's totally uh, antithetical to the Christian life because it's easier and that's how everyone else around us lives. And the answer of Revelation chapter 12 is here's the battle that's really being fought. It's a spiritual one. It's going on behind the scenes. The enemy is Satan, this great serpent. And it's also to paint them a picture of who the good guys are that actually win this thing. We read... I'm going to go back, then I'm going to go forward here on my slides. We read, um, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Here, I think I'm going to highlight it here. So that's the verse that I just read for you. And what that tells us is two things. One, What enemy are we actually fighting in this battle? That enemy is Satan. That enemy is not, for them, their emperor. He's not the real enemy. It's not the representative of that emperor in the town in which they were living. And the same is true today. Whatever enemy we think that we're fighting, whoever we think the bad guy is, whatever cause we think is really the cause that we're fighting against, it all boils down to there is one true enemy that we're fighting, and it's Satan. And what are the attacks that we are facing? What are the attacks that we're facing? How would you characterize this battle itself? And it's characterized this way. The false accusations of a great deceiver. It's accusations. For the accuser, verse 10 says, of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. There's been this great battle, and he lost, but he got thrown down to earth. And what does he decide to do? He decides to go around and pursue and battle um, the, the others who were born, the other offspring of this woman. Well, who else does the church produce, right? Who else does that remnant produce? Not just Jesus, but also his disciples and also other believers, And so they're the ones now left on the earth. They're the ones that are battling and being tormented by this Satan who is already lost, but he won't accept defeat. He's still out trying to make trouble. God is making sense to his people for why they're suffering. Why does it have to be so hard? Why can't you just keep all of this stuff from happening? And he's explaining exactly what's going on behind the scenes. Now, this enemy 
is called the accuser of our brothers. And his weapon is he has been thrown down because he accuses them day and night before our God. So this is what he does. He accuses. He says things. Like, what does that mean, right? His tools are to accuse and to deceive. Now, the reason why we have to understand the nature of this battle and we have to understand who we are and aren't fighting against is because that's how you fight. Throughout time, people have been uh, often fighting the wrong things and as a result, losing completely. Uh, Years ago, when the Panama Canal was being dug. It was a second attempt to dig this thing. And the first attempt, which was led by the French, was ultimately abandoned. And it wasn't because they didn't have the modern equipment we have today and they just couldn't dig that much dirt out. It wasn't because they couldn't figure out how to put a railway system through it, how to get the old dirt out and where to put it. It wasn't because they had to deal with getting to match the different sea levels and go over these mountains. It was for one reason that the French failed to build the Panama Canal. It was because of disease. It was because malaria and yellow fever were killing workers at such a high rate that they just couldn't do it. And so they quit. And the Americans came in and said, let's try to build this canal ourselves. And they themselves encountered the biggest uh, opposition, which was disease. The death of so many of their workers by yellow fever and malaria. And the key to being able to successfully complete this project was discovering what was causing this disease. Throughout human history, not knowing what causes diseases has killed more people than anything else. Fighting against the wrong thing which we have a long history of doing. For years, people did very bad medicine while they were trying to figure out how to do good medicine. You drilled holes in people's heads to let the evil out. I mean, I could see how they could get there, right? You drill holes in their head, and hopefully the evil spirits or the evil stuff just kind of falls out. The thing that we most often associate with, like, kind of medieval medicine is like bloodletting. Maybe it's just in the blood, so let's just cut them and let it all flow out, right? Eh, I mean, they kind of got it, but not really. Leeches, let's put some leeches on them. They'll suck it out, right? Leeches were how we dealt with it. Uh, There was one person who recommended if the person had a sore neck, and this was like a smart guy back then. He was a doctor, um, sort of. He recommended that if a person had a stiff neck that they take the urine of a goat and pour it in their ear. And that it would bring them relief to the pain they were experiencing. One of my favorite, by far my favorite, was called the chicken to the body method. If a person had a sore on their body, they would take a live chicken, pluck the feathers off of one part of its body, tie it to their body so that its bare skin was up against their bare skin, and they would leave it there until the chicken died. And the belief was that the chicken died because it took away the disease. And they would keep reapplying chickens. You go to the doctor, they take off, they change, you know, your bandage. They take off the chicken. They say, "Uh, it looks like we're going to need another fresh chicken. And then maybe come back in a week and we'll see if this thing is gone. Prior to discovering that 
uh, that about these things called germs, people believed that um, miasmas were what caused sickness, which basically was just odors and bad air. Again, kind of close, right? I mean, air, that's small, right? But the belief was that if you had like, um, like rotting stuff around or bad circulation of air, then people were going to get sick by bad smells and by fumes. And so people were constantly trying to fight this battle by attacking the wrong things. It wasn't until it was discovered that germs cause infectious diseases, and it wasn't until people discovered on building the Panama Canal that these things called mosquitoes were the ones killing everyone, that they had any idea what to do. And so all they did was put mosquito nets around everyone, and they went around putting kerosene in any standing puddle of water they could find. There were people whose job was to find a puddle of water, put some kerosene in it, and it made it so they couldn't lay eggs and they couldn't propagate. And that saved thousands and thousands and thousands of lives and got a canal built. For years, we didn't know that the real enemy was a bug. And we fought this thing with, every other, with everything else that we had. And for years, until we discovered what were really making people sick, what was really causing diseases, we fought against the wrong things. The reason we have to understand what we're being told here in Revelation chapter 12 is because we can make the very same mistake of fighting battles that are not the real battle, of fighting against enemies who are not the real enemy, and recognizing that the nature of the enemy that we're fighting against is really demonic, satanic. We are facing attacks from a great deceiver. And they come in the form of accusations. And the enemy that we're fighting is Satan. I'm just going to move back and forth through these. Now, when we talk about spiritual warfare, there's a lot of misunderstandings and unbiblical approaches to it. But I think um, what I've experienced the most that is detrimental to us successfully waging Spiritual warfare. It's us successfully fighting and battling spiritual warfare. Is that the problem is that when we talk about something being influenced by Satan, right? Something being demonic in nature. That a lot of times we do the opposite of what we're supposed to be doing in Scripture. You see, the way it worked here was this. You guys are fighting against an emperor. But the truth is, there is a spiritual force at work that's truly fighting against you through that emperor. Well, that would make that emperor someone who is sort of, it's like a demonic thing. Now it's gone from being regular bad guy to demonic bad guy. Well, the point of that is to shift your focus away from the emperor and say, I should be more concerned about what this spiritual adversary is doing. And I don't need to be as fixated on what this physical enemy is doing. The point of it is to shift our focus to the spiritual realm so that we understand where the real battle is being fought. But what we most often do when people say something is demonic, when they say that something is spiritual, right? If we think something is bad that's happening in our world, if we think someone is like our enemy, and then we have any reason to believe that it's demonic, it's spiritually influenced, what we do is instead of shifting our focus from that person to the spiritual realm, 
we say, well, now this made that person 10 times worse, right? Well, if this leader is somehow being influenced demonically, if Satan is really behind what I'm dealing with, then that means I need to fight this person 10 times more than I needed to fight them before because the stakes are higher. But the truth is, the point of this is to shift the church's focus to where the real battle's happening so they don't misunderstand what's really going on. The tools of this enemy of Satan are that he accuses. Scripture tells us that he is a deceiver. Earthly deception and repression of the truth are his primary tools. He accuses us again and again and again. Jesus describes the thief in John 10 as someone who comes in to steal and kill and destroy. We are fighting against an enemy who wants those things. And how does the enemy do it? He does it with deception and by accusing. What does that mean to accuse? He says things to us that are not true about us what he does. He is accusing. He's standing there saying things about us and their accusations. He tells us that we are guilty and that we will always be guilty. He lies to us and tells us that we need to do more in order for God to love us, that it comes down to what we can do because we're ones who are guilty and there's no way that we ever can't be. Now, this looks pretty different in each and every one of us, but you've probably experienced this at some point. You've actually experienced points in which you recognize that you are starting to believe things that aren't true about yourself or about others, and these are deceptions. These are accusations coming from the deceiver. It's kind of different for each and every one of us. We, we experience it in different ways and at different times, but the point of this is for the enemy to, by using deceptions, um, defeat us, to cause us to give up, to cause us to lose our focus, to cause us to go down the wrong path instead of the one that is true. He has been accusing them day and night, it says before our God. But we have weapons. The saints have weapons. The church has weapons because we read that he is ultimately conquered. In the next verse, and this verse, many would argue, is at the center of the book of Revelation. Revelation 12, 11 says this, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They conquered him. They were victorious. And how did they conquer him? How were they victorious? What were the weapons that they used to do this? How do we win? What do we do? When, once we've been told that we're actually experiencing a spiritual battle that we've been drawn into, and how do we win? How do we conquer? How do we defeat this enemy? The first thing that we read is that they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb. 
It is by the blood of the lamb that is the basis of all of their power, and that is how they will conquer. Not by our own power. The very core of the gospel is that Jesus has done what must be done. And you and I don't do it. It is that there's nothing that we can do that will ultimately accomplish what must be accomplished. It is because of what he has done. It is the blood of the lamb. The sacrificial lamb that we read about again and again in Revelation, that is what gives power and that is what will win. We will not win by force. We will not win by our own strength or actually anything that we ourselves have accomplished. From step one, we are victorious only when we acknowledge that the death of Jesus is what has made us good and whole and complete. There is nothing more revolutionary, I think, than waking up in the morning and looking in the mirror and saying this, the most important thing in my life has already been accomplished. And this is what the believer can say. All the things that we need to do, all the things we want to do, all the stuff we're worried about, everything we want to prove about ourselves, all of that stuff, here's the good news. The most important thing, the most important thing about me has already been accomplished. It has already been proven. And now I get to go about my life knowing that. In light of that, my job that I go to, I go to my job not because it will save me, not because I will accomplish something that I need to accomplish in order to truly have life. No, I go there knowing that the most important thing has been accomplished already. My family who I love and I want to give my best to, I can love them, I can serve them, I can give my life for them, not because I need them and not because I need to do those things and be a person who did those things well. In fact, the good news is I don't need to be that person because the most important thing about me has already been accomplished. I'm not sure that most believers believe that, why are we a people who must go back again and again and again to the gospel? The gospel in which we've been saved, in which we are living, and in which we will continue to be saved? Because that gospel is the good news that the most important thing has already been accomplished. We simply must live in light of that. It is by the power, by the blood of the Lamb, that we win, not our own power. And so we go back again and again and again to that truth above all other things. But the other thing that it says, it says they've conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. How do we win? We win by the news of the gospel, not by the answers of our world. What does that mean? It means that not only has the most important thing been accomplished, but people don't know it. In fact, we forget it. Most of the time, we don't wake up and look in the mirror and say that to ourselves. 
And if we do say it to ourselves, we forget it halfway through the day. And so we must hear the truth of the gospel again and again and again from one another. And, and those who don't yet know the good news that the battle has been fought and won must hear it. The way that we win in this battle is by spreading the good news of the gospel because the victory has already happened. The battle's already over. We live in a world full of people who don't know yet that the war is over. They are still fighting because the messenger has not returned from the front lines with the good news that we won. But the good news is that we won. I mean, we're in an election cycle now officially, right? So we are going to spend the next several months of our life hearing messages about, you know, that will save us and that will save the world, right? Hearing about different people's different opinions about what we really need in this world and where we really need to go as a country and who really should lead us there. But the truth that people need to hear is that what will really save us is the good news of the gospel. We need to bring it to everyone. How will we win in this spiritual battle? It will not be by fixating on the enemy himself. It will not be by obsessing over all the different attacks that are happening and becoming hyper-aware of all the ways that we're uh, stumbling and falling. No, and even, and even every possible temptation that could be out there and, and trying to avoid it at all costs. That is not how they conquered. They conquered by recognizing that the blood of the Lamb was their power and by the word of their testimony. But the last one, and this one's tough, is we win by letting go of everything else. Because the last thing it says in verse 11 is, for they loved not their lives even unto death. They loved not their lives even unto death. What does that mean? It means, when choosing, am I going to care more about my life or about the kingdom of God? I'm going to choose the kingdom of God. It's a constant death to self that Jesus talks about in picking up our cross and following him. You are going to die to yourself. And these are little deaths all the time. But the, but the deaths keep happening because we keep choosing to pick up our cross and carry it instead of choosing to pursue our own well-being and what will be best and most comfortable for us. The, this we read about in every letter to every church, right? Be willing to remain faithful Endure in the difficult circumstances. Persevere even unto death. The way we win is by letting go of everything else. By letting go of these other things that we are so tempted to live for because we live in a world filled with people who are living for those things. And we're tempted because we live in the flesh. It is by being willing to die that we win. How does God instruct us to deal with this spiritual warfare? To trust in the blood of the Lamb. To proclaim our testimony and recognize the power in that word. 
and to be willing to love not our lives even unto death. That's easy, right? Just go do that, piece of cake. That doesn't sound so easy. I think if there's nothing else that we take away from Revelation chapter 12, it's this. Well, it's understanding that the reason it's there is because God is showing these seven churches, showing all these churches, and showing our church today helping them understand the nature of the conflict that they are stuck in. Why does it hurt? Why is there pain? Why are we being persecuted? Why do I feel like a stranger in a foreign land? Because even though the enemy was defeated, he's still down there causing all this damage, attacking her other children, which is us. But ultimately, we can be victorious. And why on earth, why on earth would we choose to do this? Why on earth would we choose to trust in, um, in a slain lamb? That doesn't sound very powerful. Why on earth would we want to share the message of a gospel that says, there's not actually anything you can do by your own power to save yourself? Why on earth would we be willing to die to ourselves for the sake of the kingdom? Because what we know is true of our God and what we know is true of a life in Christ is that in him, death leads to life. He conquered death. Death isn't the end. Death doesn't defeat us. Death has no power over us. Death leads to life in little ways and in the most important way, which is when you die, there will be life. That gives us confidence to know how to endure this spiritual battle, how to live in a world filled with darkness, and how to not get distracted by focusing on the wrong enemies, the wrong problems, the wrong causes, that are just that, a distraction from the real battle going on. Let's pray.